We've got to get the task of the church right. Dallas Willard opined, quote, I know of no current denomination or local congregation that has a concrete plan and practice for teaching people to do, quote, all things whatsoever I have commanded you, end quote. Referencing, of course, our text in some other, probably a King James or something like that. Yet if one had to put their finger on the key effect of this commission, the, the mission of the church is to teach people to obey everything Jesus commanded you. That is our task. Because that is the task of disciple making. And that is the call focused on teaching and training people to do what Jesus commanded. It's not enough that we teach theological information. It's not enough that we tell you who God is. It's not enough that we even tell you the way of salvation. We must teach and train in doing what Jesus commanded us to do. We've been exploring various aspects of Christ's kingdom since the beginning of the year in this series, Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, it's been an opportunity to step back from just working through books of the Bible and look at the whole story and say, how does this story fit together in what we are called to do? It's important to do that periodically. We've discussed the kingdom message, kingdom prayer, kingdom culture, three times, kingdom warfare, kingdom vision, and even the economics of the kingdom. Today we're going to discuss the kingdom mission. What is the mission of Christ's kingdom? Now, a lot of attention has been given to the Great Commission, and some of that's been very good. But I will say that some of what's been said about the Great Commission doesn't always result in more understanding of the Great Commission. The Commission's goal is often assumed. You know, we just have to reach the world. I mean, we've got the Great Commission, go into all the world, and the assumption is what? Just reach the world. That's the Great Commission. Various parts of it have become catchphrases to communicate various other missions and goals. For instance, go into all the world, it's often quoted, but then we leave out the instructions of what we're supposed to do when we get there, which might be very important to recognize. Or make disciples. That's great, but it doesn't explain what a disciple is, and if we don't know that, it can lead us to being misguided. So let's explore the mission of Christ, by the way. Christ, just a reminder, we talk about this a lot, but I want to remind, when you read Christ in the Bible, think the one who has been anointed to be the king of the Jews and now, therefore, through the resurrection of everything in heaven and on earth. Christ, the king. Um, that's what Christ references. So we're going to cover it under three headings, the sent, the sender, and the assignment. The sent, the sender, and the assignment. Uh, and if you would join me uh, looking at verses 16 and 17 again in the, under the heading, The Sent. To whom does Jesus give the commission? That's where our text begins, with the people to whom this commission will be given. Who is it that is to go and make disciples of all nations? Now, does anything strike you about that designation, the 11 disciples? I mean, first, it strikes me that it's 11 They've been referred to as the twelve, but of course one of them is now dead and gone, Judas. 
But it's not the 11 apostles. It's the 11 disciples. Now, they've been called apostles in Matthew's gospel, so it's not just a matter of choosing words. It's 11 disciples. While the 11 here certainly were apostles, they've been designated such, here they're addressed as disciples. And foremost, because that's the role that they're being called to do, they represent the church. In this context, they are the apostolic community for sure. They'll become the twelve right before the day of Pentecost, the day, the birthday of the church. But now they're the church in embryo stage, if you will, awaiting that moment. And like the church, they would not otherwise be together but for their common bond in Jesus. I mean, think about this. you got Matthew the tax collector. Now, Matthew the tax collector is a guy who in his former life had betrayed his people and sold out to the Romans. And then you've got Simon the zealot who's a guy in his former life, was willing to take a sword and lop people's heads off if they supported the Romans. So Simon would happily have killed Matthew. You you got that? (laughs) And now they're together because they follow Jesus. They've laid aside their preferences for the sake of Christ. To be a part of this community meant that whatever your personal agendas, they are laid aside for the king. The eleven, or you could say the twelve minus one, is a picture of the church, the apostolic community. To whom is this commission given? To the community of disciples called the church. Not to you, not to me, But to us, but not just us in this building at 555-76th Avenue North, but to us, the church, all those who gather in places like this all across the world who worship Christ, we have been given a commission. The church is that community that has grown from the apostolic gospel. No one disciple can fulfill this commission. No individual can go into all the world. Nobody ever has. Nobody ever will. It would not be physically possible for an individual to go into all the world. So no no, no single disciple can make disciples of all nations. Likewise, you are not called to be a disciple maker. We are. You cannot make a disciple. Only we can make a disciple. I cannot make a disciple. We have to do it together. How did this community of disciples respond? Verse 17. And I'm going I'm to read this to you. This is the literal translation. The first time I was translating this text and I got here, I looked at it, I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Because it's not how it reads, but just pay close attention. We've added a word just to make it acceptable. But it literally reads, verse 17, And upon seeing him, they worshipped, but they doubted. There's no sum. They worship, but some doubt. Well, first off, even if that were the case, you're talking about 11. They're all apostles. So what, you got half the apostles who are believers and half who are the unbelievers? I don't think so. It wouldn't even make sense logically. No, it's they worshiped, but they doubted. But isn't that really a lot like all disciples? Isn't that the reality that we all face? Oh, don't kid yourself. I do. 
I've faced all the same doubts you've faced. I've wrestled with all the same things because it, it is by faith that we do this. And, you know, last time I checked, faith means we don't get to see it before we get there. It's by faith. I mean, this is the band of disciples who had spent three years preparing with Jesus himself. After they're rid of the worst apple in the bunch, Judas, they are now worshiping the resurrected Jesus in person and doubting. So if you ever think that if only you could see the resurrected Jesus, all your doubts would be cured, let me assure you they would not. Five minutes later, you'd wonder if you'd really seen that. Didn't I say they represented the church? Frederick Dale Bruner said this. He said, Christians are both believers and doubters, adoring and wondering, trusting and questioning. Is it not refreshing that Matthew admits this? All disciples experience this, this bipolarity, and it is not healthy to deny it. The good news of the Great Commission is that Jesus addresses and uses exactly such worshiping, doubting disciples. Aren't you glad that Jesus uses worshiping, doubting disciples? That gives hope to us. And oh, by the way, that's his plan for taking the world. <laughs> really? You couldn't come up with something better than that? You're going to use worshiping, doubting disciples to take the world? Yes! Well, that gives me some encouragement. And we sit here today... We sit here, I don't know how many thousands of miles away, but it'd take you a long time in an airplane to get there. <clears throat> Just our very presence together worshiping Jesus today is proof that this crazy mission has been successful at some level, certainly in scope, geographical scope, I mean. There's more to be done, <laughs> and yet, despite its Success against all odds, we still doubt. <laughs> we do. We have to deal with that. Jesus gave this commission to a powerless bunch of people whose faith is weak, and he commissions them to take the world. So if you ever think you need strong faith to take the world, clearly they did not. You only need to have your faith in a strong king to take the world. It's not our faith and its strength. It's the one in whom we have faith. Amen? The power of this commission is not in the faith of ones who are commissioned, nor is it in their size. I mean, they're 11, anything but, I mean, they are anything but impressive. And then we get to the sender. So that's the scent. Thank God for the sender. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the early church, when they started putting together their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, what they would have just called the Bible, I mean, that was what they preached from before they had the others. I mean, we looked last week at Paul quoting from Old and New Testament, so it began to come together fairly early. But um, the, the, the Old Testament Scripture sequence of books was different than in our Bible. It still is in a Hebrew Bible today. And the last book that they would have had would have been what we refer to as two chronicles. Second chronicles, we broke, broke the book in half. So we have second chronicles. 
and the very last verse of their Old Testament, right before you turn the page to what has always been the first book in the Christian Bible, or Christian New Testament, I should say, is Matthew's Gospel. And what would those last words have been? 2 Chronicles 36, 23. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. By the way, whether he's entirely right or partly right, I mean, that's up for discussion because this is him talking, and he wasn't like a worshiper of Yahweh. So be aware of that. But he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. You turn the page, and you arrive at Matthew's gospel, where toward the very beginning of that gospel, you have Jesus anointed Messiah King by the Holy Spirit. And what happens immediately after he's anointed Messiah King by the Holy Spirit at his baptism? You know, the dove coming down, the whole nine yards. What happens? Well, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And listen to this. We read in Matthew uh, 4, verse 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Well, Cyrus claims to have had all of that. Jesus now apparently can have all of that. But then notice the last words which we read earlier in Matthew's, Gospels, at Matthew's Gospel in verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Oh, wait. All authority in heaven and in earth. Not just the God of heaven has given me authority over all the earth, but no. All authority in heaven and on earth. There's no sphere that is not under his rule. He supersedes every king and every authority. Cyrus was given authority from heaven and assigned to build a temple in Jerusalem that would one day pass away. But King Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And he is building a temple also. He is building a temple also. Um, not in Jerusalem. He's building his church. He tells us that in Matthew chapter 16. And on this rock I will build my church, which Paul tells us in Ephesians is a temple wherein God will dwell by His Spirit. It's a mobile temple, one that can be taken into all the nations of the world. Here we are as that temple today. Not this building, but this gathering of people. King Jesus is far superior to any earthly king, including Cyrus. Instead of bowing to Satan and following the ways of the devil, ways of violence and justice and power grabbing, ways that we see demonstrated on, we re hear about on the news by uh, Vladimir Putin today, the ways that kings in the world do their business, instead of bowing to Satan and following those ways, Philippians 2 verse 6 through 8 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to God all the way to the point of death, but don't stop there. Verse 9 says, therefore God highly exalted him. Therefore God highly exalted him. Jesus' words at the end of Matthew's gospel that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him are the result of not bowing to Satan but obeying the Father all the way to the point of death. His authority, having been highly exalted, is the result of his humility of laying down his life for us. Jesus is king, 
But he is a very different kind of king than the world has ever seen. Jesus' declaration reminds us of something Daniel foresaw. You may remember the book of Daniel, and he had these various visions, and he, he describes the four kingdoms of the world in the beginning of Daniel chapter 7, or through to the middle of it, as, as these beastly kingdoms. I mean, the, these monstrous sort of kingdoms. And then he describes another kingdom. And he describes it this way. In my vision... At night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. So you've got this beast, and this other beast, and this other beast, and then this one that's just horrid beast with like flesh hanging out of its mouth. It's so bloody, so bloodthirsty. And then you've got one like a son of man. Well, that's ferocious. No, it's not. In fact, it's really quite unferocious. How in the world is this God's answer to the kingdoms of the world? One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He has given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples in every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this one? Well, Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, 18 that it's him. That it's him. And yes, he did not look like the earthly kings. Notice the connections between Matthew's gospel and Daniel. Jesus is called the Son of Man in Matthew's gospel. He's given authority and sovereign power right here in our text, and he is worshipped in verse 16 or in verse 17 of our text. And he, it is for all nations, and it will last to the very end of the age. All of those things connect to that verse, that, those two verses that we just read in Daniel 7. He is the fulfillment of that. But oh, what a different kind of king he is. I shared, I've shared this before when we were in John's Gospel. I shared it earlier in our foundations class because it was an aside, and I, I go there. And so I'm going to do it again here, but I think it's relevant. You, you might remember in, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, there's a story of the people who get fed by Jesus. They're all hungry, and he feeds them by multiplying the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus gets in a boat and leaves, and then he goes to the other side, and they all come looking for him. And then he basically rebukes them, saying, you're coming after me because you want more dinner, and, and that's not going to work for you. That's not what I'm all about. What we often miss in that story is that in Chapter 6 of John, verse 13, the reason that Jesus left is because they wanted to make him king by force. In other words, he's feeding us. We're going to go have a rebellion. We'll get our swords out, and we're willing to even die to make this guy king. The ways of all earthly kings. It was a temptation for Jesus to bow to the ways of Satan, the same as a wilderness temptation. Indeed, he was in a wilderness. And to follow the ways of the world to get power and might over people. And he resisted that temptation and went a different way. And then they show up the next day seeking after him. And after he rebukes him, he says, you guys have it all wrong. You see, they would use language in their culture and time, much like we would today. We might say of Vladimir Putin that he's a bloodthirsty ruler, right? It's the language we would hear. Well, they were more specific. They would speak of rulers as being cannibals, 
And what they meant by that is that they gained their rule by eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their people. Now, not literally, but by letting them be the ones who die to put them in power. Okay, we're going to send you out and you're going to die on my behalf. That's what these people wanted to do for Jesus the day before, but when they show up to find him, he says, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. If you want to be in my kingdom, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's not the way you think it is. It's the way I think it is. And the way I think it is is not that you die for me, but that I die for you. Now, of course, we know that later we may lay down our lives for him, but in a whole different cause. We, too, are called to his ways, and his ways mean that we ne- neither can we pick up the sword and start fighting his way to bring about his will. We can't bring about his will that way. We can't, by force in our homes, make our children follow his ways or our wife or our husband follow his ways. We have to follow his ways to do that. And his ways are ones where we learn from him. We, we, we give up our lives for others, not the other way around. Well, that's an aside, but we'll get back to the sermon now. The church testifies of Christ's authority. When we declare, or I'm sorry, what we declare, when we gather as the ecclesia, the church, is that Jesus is Lord over everything in heaven and earth. Just by gathering here today, we are declaring that Christ is Lord. For one, we're declaring that He's Lord of our time. We start our week in worship of Jesus. The first of our time goes to Him. We're declaring that He's Lord of our time, that our, our very use of time begins and with Him and is determined by Him. We declare in our worship, or when we say amen in preaching, what we declare by doing that is it clashes with the powers of this world. The powers that say money is the answer to everything, we declare when we give, no, it isn't. Christ's kingdom is the answer to everything. We, we declare against the politicians of this world who claim to be the source of peace and justice, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, or maybe, maybe they're Libertarians or Independents or whatever, we declare, no, Christ is the one who has all authority, power, dominion. And He's the only one who can bring peace to this world. Our gathered presence today, you might not realize this, but you came to a political rally. This is a political rally because we are here to extol a king and declare his reign, that he rules over everything. And this is the only kind of politics I'm interested in right now, because there's enough of this that needs to be proclaimed. And like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, we come together and lay down our former ideas, and we say there's one king and one politic we're interested in, and that is Christ. Jesus' ascension is a significant but often neglected aspect of the gospel. 
Paul tells the Ephesians about Christ being seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And he tells the Philippians, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ, the King, is Lord supreme to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Christian message, the gospel that we proclaim is not that a supreme being loves the world, but that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, sent His Son to become a man. He died and rose again and now rules the universe. This Jesus will judge all people. And so we must bow to Him as King, Lord, and be forgiven of our sins in His name. We proclaim Jesus, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of His Father, reigning in the clouds of glory. That is what we proclaim. The Great Commission grows out of allegiance to Jesus as king. It announces his reign, which will never end, and it seeks the furtherance of his reign and his ways. And that leads us to the real focus I want to draw our attention to in this message, which is our assignment. So We know who the sent are, very weak in faith. We know who the sender is, very powerful over everything in heaven and earth. But what is the task of the church? What is the assignment that we've been given? Read with me in verses 19 and 20 again. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. What is meant by go. I think it's the first thing we have to ask. And there are two extremes that I think we should avoid in answering that question. The first extreme, and maybe the most common, is the Nike edition of the Great Commission. Just go. Go. Just, just go. Just go, go, go. Just go. It's all about go. Go, 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 go. That's everything that is talked about. When I was first saved, I was zealous to share my faith, and that's good. But as soon as I had an inward call to preach, I went preaching. Uh, it wasn't the gospel. <laughs> what I was preaching was horrible. <laughs> and I should never have preached it, but God has mercy and had his way of uh, putting me through a fire to remove it from me. Now, it's true that you can move a, you can turn a, a moving vehicle easier than a stationary one. So, you know, if people are zealous and they're going, it's probably easier to get them in a path than if they're not doing anything. I'll grant that. Um, but we do need to be clear that Go Make Disciples is given to the church as a community, not to each individual within it. That doesn't mean that no individuals go, but not everybody is to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. I mean, all of us are to participate in that by sometimes going to our person sitting next to us and working together on making disciples in our community. That's as much a part of that great commission as the ones who go. The, the, the commission 
comes to the eleven after three years of training, and still Jesus told the apostles in Luke and Acts, right after telling them about going into all the world, that they had to wait. You see this in the book of Acts, the beginning or the end of Luke. They had to wait. Right? Don't, don't, don't. You're going to go into all the nations and proclaim the gospel. Oh, by the way, wait. Wait a minute, we've already been waiting for three years. Why are you going to wait? Wait. Wait until the Spirit comes upon you. In other words, we, we, we better not confuse calling with the time to go. That's what I did when I was young. I, I, I knew I was called to pastor, but I thought that meant I should go start doing it. I forgot about preparation. That's something involved there in terms of preparation. That probably would have been wise to consider at that time. So the Great Commission is not ready, fire, aim. It is ready, aim, fire. Okay? Uh, we're, we're often good with ready, fire, aim, but we, we want to get the ready, aim, fire sequence down. But the second extreme we, we go to with this idea of go is some will tell you that, well, go really isn't part of the Great Commission, and it often has been said. Well, the original text really says, as you are going... Make disciples of all nations. Well, actually, no, it doesn't. Uh, the construction of the sentence is go and make disciples. Um, and, 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 and so it is go. Part of the command is to go. Um, it is not just to as you are going. So that's the other extreme. Is you don't go at all. Don't bother going. But the church is called to go. Some go as evangelists and communities are formed that believe in the gospel and churches start. So going is a part of the commission, but it is us that is called to go, and each of us have our part in that. And then the second part, make disciples. What is a disciple? It's what we're supposed to make. What is a disciple? What exactly is it that we are to make? To a great degree, the definition of a disciple will be seen in the instructions that follow in just a moment. So we'll get to that, but at least a brief God gives the increase, and that's a convert. We can't do that. We're not able to do that. So I'm glad we aren't to go and make converts because that's not our job. We're to go and make disciples. To disciple, or a disciple, it means, it, to disciple someone means to make a student of or to bring to school, to educate. In modern English terms, we might say to mentor or to apprentice someone. To be clear, being a disciple maker is not the same as being a disciple. But being a disciple is a prerequisite for being a disciple maker. Being a disciple is a prerequisite for being a disciple maker. And truth be told, none of us are singularly disciple makers. We do it together as a body. Sequence matters. Got to be one before you can make one. If we attempt to be disciple makers before being disciples, we are not discipling them to follow Jesus. Probably discipling them to follow us. <laughs> and it's probably not in a good direction. That's what I was doing when I started out. Disciples of Jesus are learners of Jesus. Like the eleven, they are to spend time with Jesus and learn of Him. But learning is not merely about a set of facts and beliefs. It is learning the habits or the ways of Jesus, learning to be an image bearer of the Father, just as Jesus was. We must have those habits and ways 
starting to become part of our lives before we try to lead others in those habits and ways. So how is it that we go about making disciples or making learners or followers of Jesus? Well, there are two things that are given in the instructions, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. When God makes converts, we baptize them. Baptism is the entry point for a disciple into the community called the church. If you were to ask the apostles how to become a follower of Jesus, or as it's put in some text, what must I do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Okay? In the name of the Lord Jesus. If you were to ask most Christians today, they would say, well, say these words after me. And then they would lead you in something they've, we've termed the sinner's prayer. If you then ask someone today if baptism is necessary, they might say that it is not necessary and that to suggest otherwise would be legalistic. But it could be helpful as a demonstration of what you've already done, but definitely not as a point of emphasis. However, if you ask them, so is it necessary for someone to pray this prayer, you're likely to get a yes to that to acknowledge these things that you're acknowledging in this prayer and so on and so forth. Well, might I suggest that baptism is more grace-oriented than the sinner's prayer? Follow my logic here, just for a moment. You don't do it, it's done to you. Sinner's prayer is something you say. Baptism is something that is done to you. Somebody takes you and dunks you in the water. You can't baptize yourself. And I would also suggest that it's more grace-oriented because it was God's prescription and not ours. In other words, I would offer that doing what God said is more grace-oriented than us coming up with an idea that we think is better than what God said and doing that. This one's received from the Lord without our opinion. This one is one we've used to supplant and replace that one. So might I suggest that if we just followed the repent and be baptized uh, methodology, we would, would be closer to the uh, mark on what is grace versus works. Um, the apostolic community baptizes believers into the name, think person, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinitarian God. This is the Trinitarian God. They're also joining a family when they are baptized. We are part of God's kingdom people, Israel. He's our Father, being baptized in the name of the Father. So we're part of a family. The Son, that's another family term. And we are children of God, sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit, we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the shared life made possible by the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or what in older language was called the communion of the saints. Paul describes this this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Being a disciple means that we have become part of a community, an assembly called the church, a body. 
This entry point for being a follower of Jesus is a picture. The, the baptism, this entry point, baptism, it's a picture of dying and rising. We are baptized into his death and raised with him. It's symbolic of what our whole Christian life is going to be about. Dying and rising, laying down our life, trusting God to exalt. That is the Christian life. It's not overly exciting for many, but it is the Christian life. It is what it means to be formed into the image of Jesus. It is what it means to obey whatever He has commanded us, dying and rising. And that leads us to the second aspect of these instructions, which, you know, baptizing and teaching. Teaching with a goal. Teaching with a goal. Not just teaching. If I just get up here and teach and there's no goal at the end of this, we haven't accomplished anything. There's got to be a goal at the end of this. A community of disciples is a learning community. The curriculum, on the other hand, may surprise you. The curriculum may indeed surprise you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It could be rendered this way. Teaching them to persist in obedience to everything I have commanded you. It's a very emphatic word, this obey. Persist in obedience to everything I have commanded you. It isn't merely teaching them a proper theology of God, Jesus, salvation, the church, etc. Those are all important things, don't get me wrong. But it isn't simply teaching them that, because if they do that but don't do what Jesus commanded, they've gotten nowhere. According to Jesus, the first course of instruction for a disciple is to teach them to obey Jesus' commands. And by the way, Jesus wasn't a legalist, in case you're about to charge him with legalism for doing that. You know. <laughs> I hope you get the humor in that. <laughs> you know, if preachers get up and start talking about obeying what Jesus said, the first thing people do is, that's legalism. Yeah, but I got it from Jesus. What am I supposed to do with that? It comes from Him. Living in obedience to Jesus isn't something only for the mature. It is for all who have been baptized and entered the family. A mature saint is one who has practiced this for a period of time. They're well practiced at it. That's what a mature saint is. Obedience looks like praying for our enemies, forgiveness of those who have wronged us, not resisting evil with evil. And we could go on. We cannot have right theology without right practice. We cannot have right theology without right practice because if you have a theology that does not lead to right practice, then there's something wrong with that theology. I've used this before, but I'll say it again. When we look at the theologians of the early centuries of this country and even colonial periods, who not only were okay with, but even argued for the right of slavery, we can't just say, well, their theology was good, but their opinion on slavery was wrong. No, something was clearly off in their theology that allowed them to be okay with slavery. There's just no way around that. 
We can't just say, well, we're going to take out this piece and everything else is fine. Baloney. If we don't have right practice, there's something seriously wrong with our theology. The, the earliest document, other than Scripture, that we have from the church, the early church, from about 70 A.D., is called the Didache. And it's an instruction manual for those converts who wanted to be baptized. They're wanting to follow the Christian faith. Now, we can discuss whether there should be a long period of instruction or not before baptism. That's another discussion. But here's what's interesting. That Didache focused in large degree on the Sermon on the Mount and people obeying the teachings of Jesus that are given there. When I read the New Testament, Paul, Peter, James, I also find large portions of the Sermon on the Mount being repeated in their teachings. They were teaching people to obey Jesus' commands. Amen? Now, why teach them obedience to Jesus' commands? Because making disciples is not replicating ourselves, but rec replicating Jesus. We are to make disciples of Jesus, not disciples of us. Andrew Murray put it this way, The fruit of a life in Christ is a life like Christ. The fruit of a life in Christ is a life like Christ. Because we don't choose between proclaiming a message and living out the message. We have to teach people to obey Jesus' commands. We don't just proclaim a message. We also ask people to live out that message. That's part of what we are tasked to do. I, I fairly recently, in the last month, heard um, somebody that was in a message they were giving in the context of talking about the need to translate the Bible into every language, which is a good goal, one that I support fully. But they referenced Romans 8, verse 19, this way. For the creation waits with eager longing. And they ended their quotation there. And they went on to talk about the need that people are waiting to hear God's word. The people that, that, that yes, they need to be preached the gospel. But first we need to get the, God, the, the Bible into their language so they can even hear it. And those are all good goals. But that is not what that verse is talking about. And I was internally screaming as I sat there listening. <laughs> it's hard being me. <clears throat> I mean, he stopped mid-verse. But we must finish the verse. It says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is not waiting to hear the gospel, though in some sense I think that's true. But that's not the point of this verse. Creation, which certainly does include the people, but the whole created order, the land, the cattle, the skies, creation, the ground that we'll be on later when we're picnicking. Creation is waiting for the children of God to start living the gospel. That is how the children of God will be revealed. That's how they're revealed is when they start living it. People can look and go, oh, that's what that looks like. We are called to live the gospel. The Great Commission is, by its very nature, holistic. It's not just about believing facts. It's about living them out. Jesus is king. That means we do what he says. We can't pick between preaching and living a message. 
We can't pick between right theology and mercy, compassion, and doing what is right and just. It seems like it was the Pharisees who got rebuked for trying that method. It has been attributed, probably wrongly, but who knows, to Francis of Assisi that he said, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Well, let's clear that up. It is necessary. But equally as necessary as living the gospel. You can't take that one out. We all participate in the disciple-making mission. Since the commission is given to the church as a body, we accomplish it as a body with gifts differing. No one person is the disciple-maker in any church, including this one. It takes all of us with our different gifts and our different parts to make that possible. Like the Corinthians, we often want our particular passion to be everyone else's passion, right? Well, you're more spiritual if you, X, Y, Z. God uses our different roles and gifts to accomplish the mission. We are part of the mission when we are being made into disciples. We are part when we are preaching the message. We are part when we show up at the Friday morning or the Sunday morning prayer meeting to cry out to God on behalf of the people. That is a part of accomplishing that mission. We're part of it when we are caring for a sick member in one of our community groups. All of this is disciple-making, for it is the task and mission of the church. Even our gathering here on Sundays in worship is a part and parcel of the disciple-making mission of the church. It's important to realize that Christ is fully aware that He has chosen weak vessels for the mission. Your weakness in faith is not a surprise to Him. And yet he says, I want to use you. Thanks be to God. And by the way, he doesn't need 21st century improvements either. He he prefers using means that can give glory only to God. Weaknesses, as we might call them. It's also important to remember that the one who sends us is king over the entire universe. Everything we proclaim is relevant to the world, and Christ bids them to enter in. We go in His name. So we don't have to worry about making our message relevant. If we are preaching the gospel, it is the most relevant message in the world. It is. Now, you might say, well, people don't know that. Why? I got you there, which is why we have to live it. And then it becomes even more so relevant to them when they can see it walked out in our lives. The church is called to make learners of Jesus, those who are learning to live in His ways, following Him in the way of the cross. Becoming disciples is the first step of participation in that mission. I mean, I don't know whether whether Dallas Willard, I mean, I do know he's not omniscient. He doesn't know all, so his his opinion about what he knows of is, is certainly limited to what he knows. I would like to hope that there are some churches that have taken seriously the command to obey what Jesus has commanded us to do and has a a plan to do that. I'd like to think that we've begun down that path at least, Uh, but we've got more to learn and so much to learn in that process. But I want to be that kind of a church. That's what we strive to be. It's what we must be.
The gospel is not only good news, it is the greatest proclamation that has ever been made. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear these things, may it be that we do not leave here sort of tucking them away as treasures to pull upon sometime in the future, but rather that we leave here contemplating where we are putting into practice the commands of Jesus and where we are not. Lord, it is vital that we take seriously the how you've commanded us to live portion of the gospel. And that we, knowing that we're forgiven for our failures, run with your grace to do your will. Though we arrive like the paralytic whose friends brought him up a roof to lower him down to Jesus, we arrive like him, completely unable to do good, completely unable to do your will. We don't leave that way. We pick up our bed and go home. We are enabled by you to walk, to rise up, to be transformed in your life-giving power. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.